Welcome to Ask the Rabbi with Rabbi Menachem Creditor, a Jcast Network podcast. Join Rabbi Creditor each month as he is asked questions about Judaism, Jewish ritual, and Jewish thought by members of his community at Congregation Nitivot Shalom in Berkeley, California, and tries to provide understanding and deeper meaning in Jewish life and learning. For more information about Rabbi Creditor, please visit menachemcreditor.org. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So welcome everybody to the third Ask the Rabbi session that we're going to hold. The first one was about God, and the second one was about Israel, and both were really fruitful. I think they demonstrated that we don't have to agree to have holy conversation. And so tonight, what might spark our conversation is the theme of life cycles, but I, I wanted to say a word about what that might mean, um, and see where we go. There's no real direction this conversation has to go to be right. Um, when I hear the word life cycle, it does a few things to me. So one of them is, so I was ordained 12 years ago, uh, in 2002, and um, that isn't so long to have been a rabbi. It's 12 years. And I have seen a lot of things, but in terms of my lifespan, I recognize that I only have my vantage point. I've only been alive as long as I've been alive. And in fact, though, I've been with probably more than 100 people now who have lost someone in their lives, I thank God have never had to say Kaddish. And so for me to speak about life cycles, I have to start from a place of humility. I'm very grateful that I don't know really what I'm talking about when it comes to loss. I have been there um, with friends when they've lost a baby. I've been there when someone's lost a grandparent. I've been there when one of my peers, another preschool father, has died. Um, and so I feel very touched by death, um, but I don't really know yet, and, and I'm not looking forward to it, though I do believe that Jew, Jewish tradition has a tremendous amount of wisdom. In moments like that, uh, I need to start with a preface like that. Life is bigger than any one of us, and so as we speak about it, I want to grant dignity that I don't need to be granting, which is we each have our own experience of time. I remember having a conversation about life cycles a few years ago, and someone said something amazing. Someone, I think, was about 65, 70 years old. And I asked them to, everyone in the room to name a life cycle. And this person said, when I finished paying off all my debts. Now, I also can't fathom that, to be honest. Um, but the power of reaching a moment in life where, um, where that's the case. That is remarkable to think about. And so I want us to be open to the idea that life cycles aren't only the things that have rituals and brachot already written. Right? They're things that touch us. Uh, so let's, uh, let's start the conversation, and wherever we begin, we begin, and wherever we end, we end. And that might be a good mimic for life, too. Well, that's funny that you should start that way, because the life cycle that I was interested in is death. And, and, be, and I've also been around a lot of death when I worked at Coordinated Home Teaching. So I've been to many children's funerals. And um, I also was coordinating special ed, so there were a lot of deaths that I went through. And that's when I was glad to retire, to get away from that. But um, I just would like to know what the theory of death is. Mm. In, in in the conservative movement how how do we feel what what do we feel the soul does after death 
Okay, so we'll start there. <laughs> um, so I think it's important um, to say that from the widest Jewish lens, um, we never say we know when it comes to what happens with death and the soul. Um, Jewish tradition is too complicated to sum up in one phrase, and what typifies the conservative movement for good and for bad is the lack of unified voice, especially on theology and ideology. I think it gives us a chance to be very vibrant, but it makes complicated a coherent answer to really big questions. Um, and so I'll represent my own beliefs, mm-hmm. um, and as a, a human being, as someone who happens to be a conservative rabbi, I think that I'll be channeling some of that stuff, but the last thing I would do is try to represent the authentic answer, because anyone who does that, especially in the name of conservative Judaism, is fibbing. Um, So here's what I think happens. Um, From the perspective of the survivors, um, trauma happens. Um, The idea that the Talmud suggests that an ideal death is like uh, hair being pulled through milk, that smooth. It's used by Dara Horn in, in some of her novels also as an image. Um, the idea that death is so smooth, the transition from one world to the next, is I think the Talmud trying to be pastoral, trying to be comforting. But the experience, even after someone lives a long, full life, and lives what is called today a good death, I still think that it's trauma. So even though you asked about the soul of the one who has died, I think the perspective of the living is where Judaism would affirm attention needs to be paid. When we uh, conduct a funeral, there are two phases. One of them is milaveh. One is to take care of the dead. That's what we call chesed shelemet, an act of true love, because we never expect to be repaid. And the second half, which begins literally when we cover with earth our loved one, is uh, nichum, is comfort. And so the reason why that happens, and this gets to your question, is because at the moment of Stimat HaGolel, where earth covers at least the surface layer of our loved one, be it in a casket or in a shroud, or both, um, is because that is the release of the soul from the earth. Mm-hmm. Right? It is not necessarily a biblical idea that I'm representing, but how Judaism began to process Aristotelian thought, the development of theology and philosophy. Because for the Torah, it's not clear that there is such a thing as the soul. For the Torah, for the Tanakh, we are our body, and nefesh, what we use today in the vernacular to mean soul, in biblical terms actually means person. Mm-hmm. So when the person dies, it is possible to make the biblical argument, that is it. And the examples of resurrection in the Hebrew Bible are very complicated. There are very few, and they're usually pointed to as national resurrections. So in Ezekiel, the Valley of Dry Bones is a national resurrection. That's an army. And when um, Saul, King Saul, when he begins to lose power and his um, mental faculties, um, consults with a, a, a necromancer to talk to the soul of Samuel who has already died. They conjure up the soul of Samuel, but you'll notice that they conjure up the soul of Samuel at his grave. Which means even in that, where you think you can commune with the dead, it is based on a physical proximity with their body. By the time of the Talmud, there are conversations about the souls of people who are departed. There's this famous story about two young girls who had died, talking with each other, and (laughs) 
it's, it's a funny but not so funny story. A man who gets into a fight with his wife is kicked out of his, his, his house for the night. He, so he goes to sleep in the cemetery. And in the cemetery, he overhears from beyond the curtain, Me'achoreha Pargod, a conversation happening between two souls, these two young girls. So by the time of the Talmud, there is the idea that the soul has a separate, quote, life, separate existence uh, beyond, uh, beyond the body. So to what I believe based from some of that. Um, I know that um, my grandfather's eyes are the eyes I see in my son. I don't know, though my grandmother prays to my grandfather to be an intercessor for us to be an intercessor in heaven so that our family should be safe and healthy, though that speaks to me, especially moments of desperate sadness, um, I don't know that I believe that fully. I do believe that the essence of who we are never really goes anywhere. Um, as, as Rabbi David Wolpe says, nothing really disappears forever. Nothing's ever gone. And I think actually science says that as well, that um, energy doesn't disappear. It just relocates. Um, so I can say from a place of personal belief what I believe about those who have died, but then when I get really personal and I talk about myself dying, um, I'm desperate not to die. I don't want to die. And there's this poem that's in the rabbi's manual. I don't know who said it, but you know, when I die, may I accept it serenely. So maybe one day I'll feel that way. It might be a function of my age, but I'm so desperate to not die. I am more and more aware of my mortality with every passing moment, actually. I think about it quite a lot. Um, but it doesn't really matter to me what happens with my soul. It matters to me what happens right now with my soul and with the souls around me. And so it's not that Judaism doesn't have an answer. There are Jewish theories of transmigration of souls, of reincarnation, of a return to the unified all soul, which is God. There are, there are theories in the Kabbalah that heaven has different levels, very different from what Dante said in terms of hell, but ascending levels are in all sorts of schools of mysticism where the closer you are to God, the holier you were as a person, and the ultimate reward in heaven is to study Torah directly from God. I think those are images about how I wish I could live today. And so what would my image of heaven be today? Um, you know, I look at a book like The Lovely Bones. I look at a book like The World to Come. Um, and I see modern authors trying to sculpt the same kind of response, which is, I miss my family who's died. And I want to see my great-great-grandchildren. Um, all I can do about it right now is try to ensure that there is a world for them, just as there was a wor world for me. Um, so I know it's a broader answer than your question, but I think it's so important to say that the emphasis that Judaism places is on the here and now, focused on the tomorrow which is here. We want to see our great-grandchildren, not just for us, but for them. Because mm. our parents died young mm. and um, didn't know the grandchild their grandchildren, our kids. And to me, you know, that's like a gift to give a kid is to just keep yourself alive, stay healthy. I mean, 
not just for yourself, but for those who come after. So they have a full family. Amen. Amen. This question may be a little more specific, but I wondered about why we say Kaddish um, for people who pass. Is it? I've heard that it's to help the soul, you know, move on. But also, why specifically the Kaddish? Yeah. I mean, I, when you read through it, it doesn't, to me at least, speak specifically to, to anything that has to do with death. Yeah. Directly. So, but we do it, of course. Service. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, Kaddish is a really strange thing. Um, there are different kinds of Kaddish, and that already tells you that it isn't one thing. And in fact, the origin of Kaddish had nothing to do with when someone died, it had to do with study. And in fact, Kaddish was one line, Yeheshme. In the Talmud, it says, someone who says that middle line that we all say out loud, Yeheshme Rabba Mevorach, may God's great name be extolled and exclaimed forever, Amen, right? That line, it says in the Talmud, if you say it with all of your strength, you shatter the severity of a, of a bad decree. Right? We say that actually on Yom Kippur, that tshuva, tefillah, and tzedakah, right? that repentance, prayer, and, uh, and tzedakah, which should not be translated as charity, but justice given, they shatter a bad decree as well, or the severity of the decree. Um, the question about why we say Kaddish when it comes to death is interesting historically. Um, and it's an evolution, right? It was, was first <coughs> for study and then became basically a liturgical punctuation mark to show when we were dividing between certain prayers. And, um, and then the Kaddish, when it comes to death, is fairly late. And why we say it at all is probably, we think, because learning was associated with loss. That is what we did when we had loss. And the fact that it required 10, it's one of the few prayers that you really need a minion for. We think that you need a minyan to pray. That's not the case. But for certain things called Dvarim Shibik um words that are, that are especially holy, the Barchu, Kaddish, the blessings for an Aliyah to the Torah, and the Kedushah as part of the Amidah. Really, those are it. There are maybe one or two others. But the ten um, means that you have a mandate to not be alone. And so I would say at the very basic level, the reason why Kaddish is associated with death is because tradition wants us to have as hard a time as possible being alone. Right? One of the things that I've noticed when I'm with people during Shiva, and then especially right after, is how many people there are. And we should be blessed to have those kinds of connections. Not, it's not true for everyone. In fact, that's one of the mandates I think we have as a community, to be connected with each other, even if we weren't already. But that Kaddish requires 10 means we can say, you have an obligation, you person who just happens to be in the congregation, show up for this person because they can't mourn without you. Now, the person doing the mourning wouldn't say that, but it's tradition saying it for the mourner, as it were. Now, more than that, you might know that there are different periods of time during which we say Kaddish. So for a parent, we say Kaddish for 11 months in a day. For any other relative, at least in terms of what is mandated by tradition, it's 30 days. It's a month-ish. Right? Then we have Shloshim, which is the end of that period. So um, one of the reasons for it, 
uh, has been suggested, the one that you suggested, which is that it helps the soul. But why 11 months in a day for the parents? Because presumably, tradition presumes that when someone dies, they will have a child saying Kaddish for them. Now, of course, that's not always the case. And we as a community, when you hear me saying, we're saying Kaddish for this person or this person, many times I say, as a community. Because we have many people in our community, and not everyone has a child, and we are the children of those who have died. I remember seeing George Gidal's face during the slideshow, during our gala two days ago, and I miss him so much. Now, he has children, right? And Toby comes to shul. But I felt in that moment a kind of loss that I didn't really know how to express, and so it's important for me at least to say that a community is there, not in loco parentis, but in loco child. Right, to be the child sometimes. Um, the reason for 11 months has actually been um, explored by some archaeologists in Israel. During the Second Temple period, the burial customs included um, when you died, you were placed uh, in a cave called an ossuary, where you would be laid down on, uh, on a stone bed, basically, for 11 months. Because in that temperature, in that climate, that's how long it took for your body to decompose. And then your bones would be collected into a box the size of your longest bone, which is this bone over here by your leg. And your bones would be collected into that special box, and then you would be placed, literally, to rest with your ancestors. Because it was a family collection place for the bones of your ancestors. So why would you say Kaddish for 11 months in a day? Because that's the amount of time it took for the body to decompose. And according to the ancients, you experienced the pain of that. You experienced the pain of your body decomposing, and Kaddish was comforting. Mm. Someone would be loving you, mm. so that you would not feel the pain as deeply, until you, you ascended. And the idea of the ascent of the soul, which is not biblical, but it's fairly ancient uh, throughout the world and in the Jewish world, post-biblical is where really that begins. The ascent of the soul is very much bound up in the decomposition of the body. The less of me there is physically, the closer I am unified to that which is beyond physicality. We call that God. So I think it's for all those things. And the last word I'll say about Kaddish is that we don't say it when someone dies. We say it when they're buried. It's so powerful to me, number one, that we say Kaddish in a language no one speaks. The meaning of it is not the point of it. Right? Some say, ah, I affirm God's might and, and beneficence, right? goodness, when I am suffering most. I find that to be dogmatic and not at all the experience of Kaddish. So even if that might be true in some theoretical sense, the act of saying Kaddish at the moment of burial and not at death means that tradition affords me the chance to be in shock and have no response. If I have the mind space to do so, I rip my clothing, not some ribbon that many of us do today. I tear my clothing. I wear my tear. Um, and I couldn't say Kaddish while doing that. That's, that's raw. Kaddish comes later when the burial itself happens because there has been a process that gets me there. Right? It might be just as jagged, but it's not immediate. And so I think Kaddish being sort of a first next step and being part of accompanying someone's soul forward and upward is an incredibly important way to, to phrase it.
question kind of relates, and you've already answered it a bit, but um, so I can get very claustrophobic, <laughs> and the idea of burial really weirds me out. Um, something like cremation, where your body is not rotting in a box, is much more appealing, and your ashes are spreading, and there's a feeling of freedom to that. So I have trouble with the idea of being buried underground, and I'm wondering. Yeah. You've already talked a bit about it, but maybe you can speak a little bit more about why why burial. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate the question. You know, it's it's a very alive question uh, in current practice. The number of people who are uh, opting circ- uh, towards cremation as opposed to um, uh, burial in the ground is actually growing. Uh, in Jewish terms, that's problematic, and I'll sort of reflect my own, um, my commitments and my thoughts, but I, I don't want to uh, suggest that your emotional response doesn't have a very important place in a Jewish conversation. Um, I have a whole um, podcast I did for the Hever Kedisha on cremation that's uh, somewhere on, on SoundCloud uh, as well, where I deal with this much more in depth with some sources. Um, so here's, here are a few different ways that I would respond, besides the affirmation stuff. This is more a response to. Um, I think the cremation is very hard uh, to comprehend in Jewish terms. Uh, in, in human terms, and as an, someone who appreciates other faith traditions and other practices large, uh, generally, um, I, I can find beauty in all sorts of stuff. I remember seeing a documentary, um, uh, I think maybe it was a Polynesian uh, community being observed by an anthropologist, I'm not sure might be misplacing it, but where cremation happened and they went into the water and they scattered the ashes and it was part of this really stunning circular holy ceremony. And I can only imagine, it does not feel comfortable for me, but I could identify beauty in it. But for Jew, for Jews, number one, the idea of Jews burning um, is not only, speaking very forcefully, but also humbly from my perspective, um, is not only anathema because of the Shoah, but also because Jews have been thrown into fiery furnaces throughout time. And it's not that fire is only a destructive thing. Obviously, we have Shabbat candles, Chanukiah, we have all, Lagba Omer, we have all sorts of fire-connected ritual, but the idea that I would place my body into it feels very alien because it has been done to us. I say that hand-in-hand with a recognition that there are many survivors of the Shoah who have chosen to be cremated in allegiance with those who died, who didn't survive. And I I can't actually answer that because what do I know? But from my own spiritual halachic place, that isn't something I can imagine. It isn't also my right to have to imagine it for others when they make their own choices. But in traditional Jewish terms, I'm comfortable saying that cremation is very problematic. There are those who say that cremation is outlawed by Jewish tradition, which it is, and that the reason, some suggest, is because it means you deny resurrection. I find that problematic, because if you can believe in the miracle of resurrection, you can believe in resurrection. right? And my ashes can be made back into me just as my bones can be made back into me. So I find that to be specious and a little bit polemical. Like That's not really helpful. In terms of the experience of being in the ground, I, I, I can't answer it in terms of, you know, a, a phobia, which is, you know, that's just where, what it is. Um, <clears throat> that we don't have sensation when we die is probably an answer. 
I can answer this way, um, and I, I am speaking a little bit out of turn because we're not supposed to talk about it, but I think it's useful as an illustration, and you'll forgive me for the little bit of breach. Um, having been part of a Tahara team uh, to prepare someone when they've died for burial um, has transformed what I think about life and death and body and space, actually, because um, when we take care of someone who has died, first of all, we treat them the way we forget to treat each other when we're alive, with incredible gentleness and incredible care and you know, the, the recognition of the divinity of our bodies. I mean, the languages from Song of Songs, we talk about each other's bodies with such holiness. Um, I, I don't even know that I think that way about my own body, let alone, you know, maybe my children. Maybe I do think about them in a more regular way. Um, and when we're done dressing the person, um, we then lovingly place them into the casket. And the casket itself, you know, it's the size of a casket. But I guess to be a little bit trite, um, there's a phrase in, in Doctor Who, in the series, where when they're looking at this time machine called the TARDIS, they say it's bigger on the inside. I, you know, we put the person in, and we have some earth from the land of Israel that we place uh, in the casket, and there are pottery shards we place on their eyes, and there are so many different ways to think about this, but that person, that person's body, is now transformed into an expansive kind of dignity. So it's not that I can answer a fear about being in constricted spaces, but what I can say is that that's not, at least from the outside of it, that's not the experience of it. Um, I did a, a funeral recently at, at the Green Cemetery at Ganyarok, where um, for the first time, at least that I was officiating, the person had chosen to be buried without a casket. And so they were wrapped beautifully beautifully, but the shape of their body was, was there. Um, and I found it to be actually rapturous. Mm -hmm. it, it was just as painful goodbye and more visceral. Placing Earth was really hard. I watched everybody be so uncomfortable and also so dedicated to being loving. Um, so what I can say is that the Earth, um, as opposed to images from, you know, scary movies that come to mind as I think about it as being alive, right? But the earth um, holds us in, in this return. Because in as much as I'm not sure about the soul, I do believe in my body. And my body came from the earth. Not only in Jewish terms, Adam, right? The first earthling from the word Adama, earth. right? But also because... Like I said before, matter just relocates and energy just relocates. I'm just energy moving slowly. And when my time comes to be done moving at all, the parts of me that are physical, I want them to reanimate the world. And I find that very, very meaningful personally. In Can Israel, I? I'm sorry. In Israel, it's very common to bury people in a in a tallit mm -hmm. and and not a coffin, and you know so. It, yeah, it's very common. Yeah, there's this iconic image of uh, Dr. David Hartman, who uh, just died a little bit over a year ago. A tremendous, tremendous teacher in the Jewish world. He died in Jerusalem. He founded an institute named after his father, the Shalom Hartman Institute. And, um, and his funeral is in the Beit Midrash, in the house of study of the Hartman Institute. And he's in a talit. Mm -hmm. And he's laying there, and the 
the reverence of it, the idea that this great person's physical body is right there. It's, it's something that we miss, actually. And I never thought about it in such terms until I did this one funeral where the person's body's outline was evident. I have claustrophobia pretty bad. <laughs> and I have thought about what you've thought about, and I don't like it. I don't feel comfortable, and I don't want my nostrils filled with dirt because then I won't be able to breathe. <laughs> but I'm a gardener, and I bury lots of things like uh, grass that I cut or leaves. You know, I just throw them in a hole, and then I put the plant in the hole. And, you know, the grass and the leaves turn into fertilizer, basically, and I had some good soil, because the old soil is clay. And then I think the roots are going to be nourished. But that's not me, you know. What I am, after I die and I'm buried, is the flower or the plant or the tree that grows above, and that's going to release my soul. And the soul won't be cramped. It'll have the whole universe. Mm. It is so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know how to follow that. Yeah. <laughs> no, just, but just, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take us back to another life event cycle that's an event that's important for many of us, and also I think important sort of life cycle in our community, and that's conversion. And I'm, could you say, I'm, I really don't know what, one thing that always troubles me is the way that different areas of Judaism don't recognize one another's yeah. conversions. And that troubles me, and I don't really understand it, and I don't understand where, what the differences are and, and, and what the conservative or what your yeah. sort of take on that is. And um, it's very personal because, you know, we want to be as inclusive. And when someone's a Jew, they're a Jew. They join the community. And yeah. so I wonder if you could speak about that life cycle event. Yeah. Um, so I can speak about it from the perspective of rabbi of a community um, and friend. Right, because um, in our circle right now are people who've chosen Judaism mm -hmm. or who affirmed a Jewish identity that was halakhically not uh, uh, recognized, which means, let's say, for the conservative movement, since we accept matrilineal descent, that the mother is Jewish and therefore the person is Jewish, or that someone converts into Judaism having no Jewish lineage, um, if someone's father is Jewish and the mother is not, there is a required affirmation ritual, which is the same physical stuff as conversion, but isn't the same at all because the person is a Jew in all ways but law. So I think it's important to say that um, it's important to delineate that Jewishness is bigger than law, right? And that halakha, Jewish law, um, is what we are bound to as a conservative community and what I am bound to as a conservative Jew. Um, even though I think the label is a little bit stymieing, it's not a helpful label in the world anymore because people are not identifying denominationally. So what I would say is, as a, a progressive halachic Jew, right? And I think that's a, a better term, even though it's not brand worthy. Um, as a rabbi, I can say that my favorite thing to do in the world is to accompany someone as they're choosing Judaism, as they're affirming a Jewish identity. Because ultimately, um, 
you know, I, I sometimes doubt the whole enterprise. I really do sometimes. You know, I look at how we as a community function, sometimes how we don't. I look at how we as a global people sometimes function and sometimes don't. I look at how Judaism as one faith voice can evoke all the beauty in the world and sometimes doesn't. And I also look at how tired I get sometimes as a rabbi, um, encouraging a community to deepen its observance with very little results, which is just how it always will be. Um, and to encourage not just attendance, but leadership as Jews. Um, and that's, that's always an uphill battle. That's what community organizing is, let alone religious growth. And so when someone chooses Judaism, they're telling me, and they do tell me, what you represent is something worthy, is something worthy of my personal work. I want to be that with you. I want to be family with you. Now, I don't only feel that from people who choose Judaism. I feel that from people who marry Jews, who are participants in community because I'm committed to us being a place, to us being a, a very traditional shul where everyone is welcome. And as I said recently, it sounds a little bit snarky, but I think it's a radical inclusion to say everyone is welcome to come do it our way. Right? We are a traditional shul and no one ever should be judged for walking in. Um, and I find that to be a really important balance to how I feel about conversion because the truth is I want everybody to be Jewish. Judaism is amazing. I don't think it's better. I just know it's awesome. Mm. And I think it's worth shouting from the rooftops how amazing Judaism is. And of course, when I'm shouting about Judaism, I'm shouting about my Judaism. And that gets to some of the other parts of your question. Why is it that our global Jewish family doesn't see itself as such? And I think the answer is political, and it's natural. And what I would refer everyone to is their own family. Your own, whatever family experience you have. And if you have only a functional family, that's amazing. I've never heard of that. <laughs> right? But within normal, normal Within typical families, there is going to be no word that works on this one. Within a typical family makeup, the closer you are, the harder it is to be together. And that's because we sometimes make really different choices just based on the unique people we are. And sometimes we make decisions so that we can be unique in comparison to those who are closest to us. My father is a rabbi. I knew I didn't want to be a rabbi. My father is a pulpit rabbi. I was not going to a pulpit. And there I was for my senior sermon, another bearded, almost rabbi creditor. Now, I was born for my father's senior sermon, and we were expecting our first child during my senior sermon. I had a beard. I was scared. Right? And so what I chose to talk about at my senior sermon was resemblance as different than identity. But that has a lot to do with, I think, how we see ourselves in the world. So... A Reformed Jew, an Orthodox Jew, a Renewal Jew, a Reconstructionist Jew, a Humanist Jew, a Conservative Jew, a Haredi Jew, a Chabad Jew. Right? You put them all in a room. Do they all think they're family? I'm not sure. But to be really blunt, to be really blunt, if someone else puts them in a room, mm. they're all family. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so I think what's really important is this horrible truth, mm. which is that Hitler told us who was a Jew more than any Jew was willing to say. And I find that to be an incredibly intense and important recognition and something that should make us humble about the kind of Jew we are in the context of the whole. 
It is not an affirming thing to say, but it is an honest thing to say that sociologically speaking, when we feel free to attack each other within our Jewish family, right, we are sometimes reminded that the world doesn't see those differences as much as we do. Now, more, so I, I want to get past that important emotional statement in order to talk about, well, what about conversion actually is different movement to movement or stream to stream. So what's really important, at least for me to answer my perspective, when someone comes to our shul who I don't know and says, I'm a Jew, they are a Jew. I don't say, oh, were you born Jewish? Did you convert Jewish? Was your mother Jewish? In your conversion, were there three people on your Beit Din? If you were a man, did you, are you circumcised? Did you have a hatafat ambrit, the, drawing of the, the symbolic drawing of one drop of blood, which we do if someone is medically circumcised, but has not been circumcised ritually, and is a man who is going to become uh, a Jew, right? I don't ask those questions, because if they say, I am a Jew, I say, you're a Jew. If they say, I want to be part of your community and I don't want to be Jewish, I say, welcome, you're not a Jew. <laughs> if someone comes to me and says, I want to become a Jew, which I am shocked, happens all the time. I am still shocked. It's been seven years since I've been Rabbi Nitivo Shalom, and I think at last count it was 63 people who've come to Beit Din with me. And it is the most glorious thing I get to do because I'm proud to be Jewish in those moments, that these spectacular people think that Judaism is worthy, it must be worthy. <laughs> were it not for them, I wouldn't be so sure. Right? So, we're not for they. They. We're not for they. Not I want to get not, them. Not for them. Uh, they. Oh. Not for them. Okay, one of them is correct. <laughs> one of they is correct. Um, so, what are the differences, movement to movement, right? So, what's important is that halakha, Jewish law, is very varied. So, I'll tell you what I require, and then I'll work around that one. Okay, great. So, if someone is um, born a woman and now a woman who wants to become a Jew, right? And that is really important to delineate. The requirement is serious study, and then going to mikvah, the ritual bath, uh, after meeting with a Beit Din of three, three very Jewy Jews, I like to say, um, and after affirming uh, that they are doing this of their own free will, and that they accept upon themselves all of the obligations of Judaism, as any Jew does, they immerse in a mikvah three times, with a witness to tell me, or tell the Beit Din that it's kosher to testify. I don't watch it myself, I have someone bearing testimony. Um, and with the brachot, and with the immersions, it is complete. And then they get what I call sacred paperwork. And, uh, and they are a Jew. Um, if someone is uh, now male, right? So an MTF, as they say. Um, no, FTM. Right? Female transition, male. Um, uh, the question is a very important one. And I've learned in our community what it means to think about transgender um, bodies, not because I understand, but because I, I've been told. And when someone who's now a man comes to me and says, I want to become a Jew, what must I do? I made the mistake once of saying, well, all you have to do is go to mikvah, halakhically, because your body was a woman's body. Mm. And they say, do I need to have a, a circumcision? And that first time I said, no, you don't need to. 
it negated who they were in a way that I never would have understood had they not shared their pain with me. And so there is an emerging understanding that circumcision somehow, somehow, needs to be implemented in a way that bears dignity to their body um, and doesn't deny that they are now a man. Um, and so I'll share that there are teachers in our community who are working on developing that right now. I have worked with two people for whom that has been their body, and I've let them make the determination and really honored it. Because um, I, I accidentally erased who they were. Um, yes. If someone uh, is a man and has not been circumcised and is now a man, I was a little bit out of order, um, they must be circumcised in order to convert to Judaism, a full medical circumcision. If someone is a man and was a man, has been medically circumcised and wants to convert, they need to do what's called hatafata brit, the uh, symbolic drawing of blood. And what we really do now, most people do this, is that instead of having a moil, right, a ritual circumcision uh, official, uh, officiant, um, you can get a diabetes blood tester and draw blood. So the person actually does it themselves. I, I guess I'll bear testimony now to what I say to people when they come to me, is that before I would ever ask anyone to do it and say it's not a big deal, it's psychologically a big deal, but physically it's okay, I did it to myself in order to understand what I was asking someone to do. Um, and psychologically it is a very big deal. <laughs> and religiously it is a very big deal. Mm -hmm. And physically it's okay. Mm -hmm. Physically it's okay. Um, and so I lead the person through the blessings, I'm there with them, and they go into seclusion and they do it. Um, there is a tradition of showing gauze with a drop of blood just to bear testimony and then to discard that, so usually we do that. Um, and then, they, then after all of these, the person then meets with a beitin, which is three people, and typically the person who's converting thinks before we begin the process that we're going to ask them, like, when was the Shulchan Aruch written? Yes. <laughs> and how many Jews live in Portugal today? <laughs> and what's the name of the author of you know, the Arbaturim, and, you know. So what I explained to them, and they doubted actually until that moment, is that there are born Jews who can't speak a lick of Hebrew. There are born Jews who have no inkling of Jewish literature and thought. And by someone making the conscious decision to become a Jew, they have given so much thought to this identity thing. It's an existential thing. The difference between someone who is on their way to becoming Jewish, and someone who is Jewish in all but law, is when they stop saying they about Jews. And they say we. And when three Jewish teenagers are kidnapped, those are our children. When we feel that to our core, and hopefully we feel that about every human being, but it's just dimensions closer. right? That existential feeling is what determines a Jewish identity, and you cannot test for that. I say to the people I work with, I will probably know before you that you're ready, but that won't be true until you say, get out of my way, I'm ready. And so they come before the Beitin, and the Beitin asks questions like, why are you doing this? We are so amazed. Not why are you doing this, we don't want you. Why are you doing this? Remind us why we are. You know, what is your favorite holiday? What is a problem you have with tradition? Because there is no such thing as a Jew who takes it all and is happy with everything, right? And maybe if there is such a Jew, 
I just haven't met them yet. Um, Orthodox Judaism will not accept people who convert with me. That is for two reasons. One is because I count women on my Beit Din. I will not convene a Beit Din intending to not have women on it. If by chance it's all men, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But I will not intentionally convene an all-male Beit Din mm -hmm. um, because the premise, and this is in the Halakha, in inherited Halakha, that women uh, are lightheaded. And that's why they can't bear testimony. Um, that is a certain era's value statement that today translates into misogyny. And I cannot, I cannot countenance that. That is not Judaism's voice anymore. And so, um, though I tell people who are working with me about this limitation then, that, you know, 13% of American Jewry identifies as Orthodox. And in terms of the chief rabbinate of Israel, for the purposes of making Aliyah, someone that I declare Jewish can make Aliyah, but if they're not yet married, when they move to Israel, they will have to convert according to the rabbinate, even though they were allowed to make Aliyah, to move to Israel based on my authority. They cannot marry as a Jew because they haven't converted according to the rabbinate's definition. And it's disgusting in Israel. It's disgusting. And when, when Israel was founded, it was Hitler's definition of a Jew was the definition of for a the, Jew. For the purpose of the law of return on the basic yes, law. Yes, But not in terms of conversion because Ben-Gurion made a mistake he had to make, which was to cede authority, which of course has not just ripple effects, but has trauma that it has caused to the Jewish people, but gave authority to the ultra-Orthodox in order to pull them into the coalition of the founding of the state. And so... Um, for one reason that I include women, but the other one is political. I'm not an Orthodox rabbi. And so, um, because I'm not an Orthodox rabbi, my conversions are not considered kosher. Now, that's not true of every Orthodox community, but it's true of most. So, will you go ahead. Well, because I have to then talk about what about conversions that are not done according to halakha, people who come to me. Right. So some, someone who has gone through a conversion through any other brand of Judaism yeah. and, um, and presents as such, right? So it's not, I'm a Jew, I'd love to join your shul, and I say, awesome, let's have Kiddush, right? It's, I converted to Judaism, but it was just a ceremony with a talus. Or, and this happens quite a lot, a family who's a member of our local reform shul, and this happened a few years ago in a way that blew my mind. Blew my mind. A family that um, belonged to the reform shul. Uh, the mother wasn't Jewish. The father was Jewish. Is. No, was. Mother wasn't Jewish. The father was Jewish. The children are committed so unbelievably. Like, what isn't Jewish about them? And the mother wants to convert to Judaism and specifically wants a conversion with me for whatever reason. But the children themselves are not halakhically Jewish. So what do we do? Well, it's one boy, one girl. Right? So, it's not, I don't want to say it's easy for one and not easy for the other, but the truth is it was easy for one and not easy for the other. And the mother said, can you come and talk to my children about this? And I said, absolutely not. Your children will never hear from me that they're not Jewish. They will never hear from me that they're not Jewish enough. You have to go talk to your children. If you want them to do this, you have to talk to them about your own decision. And in fact, this happened. 
that, um, without going into too many details, both children opted for a conservative conversion, which involved Hatafat Dambrit, it involved mikvah, and we called it what it was, which was an affirmation of the Jews they already were. How could they be seen as anything other? And yet, according to law, they weren't technically. Now, if I hadn't known that and they moved to the community, and they had gone through B'nai Mitzvah and had Aliyot, and would I be upset if I ever found out that they weren't halachically Jewish? No, I'd be stymied at a system that saw them as anything other. But when the knowledge is revealed, I think in order to act with integrity, we have to have our system. And so in as much as I find the Haredi stranglehold on Jewish identity in Israel anathema and evil and judgmental and hurtful, I do understand that they are following their own best practices based on knowledge that is made, made, made aware. It's a very hard And, and I imagine he's just <laughs> where this then, another life cycle event that this bears on is, is marriage. Marriage and burial. And, and what kinds of ceremony yes. that you as a rabbi will perform. Because yes. it's not just... I mean, it raises those issues as well. Can I, I just talk about our... No, I don't want, I don't I don't want comments about Israel right now. No, 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 I'm not talking about no. Israel. Our granddaughter was had a conversion in December, and it was so sweet. It was so sweet. <laughs> That's right. We can talk about that a lot. That's, <laughs> That's great. right. Yeah. That's right. So you can take this question. We can, we can open it up to another... Well, let me like, answer briefly. Because, and because then, that's yeah. another, you know, marriage and yeah, and Jewish burial, ceremonies. and burial, by the way. And There's well. actually a great book. It's not. It's written by a friend of mine, Joel Chaznov. He's a Jewish American comedian who um, fell in love with an Israeli woman, a Yemenite woman, actually, Israeli woman named Dorit, and um, he was really moved. He, as a Jew, I mean, so dedicated. Her family's Israeli, so he wants to make Aliyah. You know, he is driven to protect the Jewish people. And he writes this in a book called The 188th Crybaby Brigade, How a Skinny Kid from Chicago Fought Hezbollah. <laughs> it's a comedian. I mean, it's a little bit raunchy <laughs> in the book. It's very funny. Um, and it's also really, really heartbreaking because he makes Aliyah. He serves in the Israeli army. And when he meets these Israelis, they're like, what are you doing, man? Because he was also a little bit older. When I think he was 21 and they were 18. What are you doing here? He says, I'm fighting to defend the Jewish people. What are you doing? And they're all Israeli. They're like, I'm going to New York when I'm done. You know? <laughs> so it's actually a very complicated statement in that way too. And right. so then he and Dorit register with the chief rabbinate and the chief rabbinate has him full stuff out. And it turns out because his mother converted to Judaism, he isn't Jewish enough to get married in Israel. So he said, I'm Jewish enough to die for you, but not to marry and then for burial, it's true as well. And this faces Russian Israelis, uh, who are obviously Jewish, and the rabbinate has not allowed them to convert. There's been a lot, and it becomes corrupt and political and, and hard and bad. Um, so in terms of marriage, you know, the marriages that I officiate in the United States are recognized in Israel. But that's because I'm recognized as an officer of the state here in the States which is complicated on American terms because synagogue and state should not conflict. It is, that's a good rhyme actually. Um, it's, a, it's a real problem when religious authorities wield state authority. But because I do, the marriages I conduct here are recognized in Israel. Not as Jewish marriages, right. but as marriages. 
But who does that impact? It does not impact a child because a child of two single people is the child of those people in halachic terms. The idea of illegitimacy or whatever word we would use is not a Jewish term. The Hebrew or Yiddish word mamzer or mamzer means a child of incest or adultery. That's someone who is stigmatized according to halacha, at least according to orthodox halacha, um, even though the conservative movement has responded in a lot of ways, what did that child do? Right? It's a very complicated question on moral terms. But in Israel, um, someone who is born of two people is the child of those two people. So it's not an issue, though, of course, officiating at a Jewish marriage in Israel, well, that's the one place I can't officiate at a Jewish marriage. And that, that has to change. There are rules being um, suggested right now, some of which I've been involved with politically myself, because uh, Yesh Atid, the party in Israel being led by Yair Lapid, um, is introducing a law co-authored by Eliza Levy, Minister of Knesset, and Ruth Calderon, another Minister of Knesset, to introduce civil marriage in Israel, which is their attempt, though I find it offensive in some ways, their attempt to break the ultra-Orthodox stranglehold, which would, ironically, because it wasn't religious, open the door for other marriages to take place in Israel conducted by other officiants. It's problematic because I only officiate because I'm a religious leader, but it would open up the door in a backwards way. Doug, did you? Um, and this, you, this, will be, this will be the last one. Uh, how do you, um, or is there a, a way to deal with missed life cycle things? Namely, mm. well, obviously I didn't have bar mitzvah, which I could do as an adult, I know, but namely marriage and child. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very powerful to me that you ask in the way that you did missed life cycle. Um, the bar bat mitzvah answer, I think, is relatively straightforward. We've in the last year had three adult b'nai mitzvah, and they are. They don't make up, for a time past, but they are radically beautiful. I mean, it's one of them in different in a different way, um, and I think it's easier to talk about that. But what's harder to talk about is, um, from from your phrasing itself, missed. You know, marriage or children. Um, it's a very hard one to answer because I I um, I'm hyper conscious of it sometimes. The the awareness I have that so much of our liturgy and so much of our communal organizing is around family. I know it's very hard, and I don't know it because I know it. I know it because I love people whose faces show it. Um, and I find it to be hard to respond to that question. I do have thoughts about it, but um, they are missed. I think that's the right word for it. Um, what it means for me to be a community is an attempt to respond to that. There are people in our community who don't have children who I know see my children as theirs. It's not the same. I know it's not the same. It's something I take great pride in, but I'm in the luxurious position of sharing my children with the community. But um, I also think that's one of the reasons we need to be fierce in, in defending the place of children in all areas of community. Um, because 
I want my children to be your children. I want them to like run into your stomach and knock you over once in a while instead of me. <laughs> um, I want them to bless you back at a Shabbat table. Um, and that's hard. It's, it's hard because children, my children shouldn't and don't do what I intend for them to do. They're their own emerging people. But the way that we organize it as a community is so that we can be each other's family. And in terms of marriage, first of all, I do believe it's never too late. I think that there is amazing, amazing love that's possible in any moment of life. And so I don't give up hope ever on that. Um, and I, I humbly say it that way. Um, and um, the only thing that I can add to what is a really profound question that I do think about, you know, Brad Artson says it this way, he talks about singles groups, which is a totally different way of framing only part of what you said. He said single groups are the oddest things in the world because they're the only groups that try to program the population out of existence. <laughs> right? But, you know, that, le that both comes from the valuing of family, but also the norm of it in organized Jewish community, which makes its absence hard. Um, I know that when we moved to Berkeley, we didn't have any family here. And it's different because it was a we. It's, you know, so my frame is different. Um, but all of a sudden, my kids had uncles and aunts and grandparents and siblings and cousins that they'd never met that I'd never met um, because no one really drew those lines here. And it might be because in our community we're a lot of transplants. There are very few multi-generational families. I mean, you're, you're one of them. Uh, it's not common, and you guys also. But it's not a common experience, at least in my experience of our shul, of many shuls around here, because a lot of people move here. And so because of that, I think that the slippery line of who's family and who's not might be a small, small dose of of love that everybody is meant to experience. I don't think it's an adequate response to it. It's a very profound question. But I think that we make the commitment as a community as best we can and better every day that no one should be alone. For me, and this is sort of where I wanted to end, um, and I, you know, it's hard to say it in any other way, but my theology, as much as I could phrase it in, in lots of different ways but what I believe about God is that God is the opposite of loneliness and that ultimately what holds us together as a community is that we intend to act the way God acts we say that actually in the early moments of, uh, of Shabbat morning or in the week when we do some learning one of the reflective passages says follow the whole follow the ways follow God follow the Holy One is it possible for a mortal to follow the ways of God? And the answer is no. But we follow the attributes of God. Just as God clothed the naked, you should clothe the naked. As God buried the dead, you should bury the dead. Well, as God said it was not good to be alone, we should say it's not good to be alone. And we as a community are meant to be there for each other. And there are members of our community who I watch. And, you know, I, I haven't been doing it forever, but I've been doing it for a little while. I watch them age. And you might notice this too. There are certain people right now in our community that when they enter the room, everybody turns. 
and one person inevitably or four people sometimes get up to help them. That is true of people who are in wheelchairs. It is true of people with walkers. It is true of the children. It is true of the rabbi who needs help sometimes and no one hesitates. I think organized religion goes wrong when it loses the rawness of the rituals, when we lose what life cycles are meant to do to us, which is to sensitize us to each other's lives. So I, you know, I look at each one of us in the room, and actually each one of us in this room has shared something sensitive. I have with you, and you might have with each other. And the fact that we are willing to be vulnerable with each other means that we truly are family. Sometimes better, sometimes not as present as we're supposed to be, but that's also family. There are times where my blood family is more or less present than I need, and that ebb and flow is hard to deal with and also very honest. So what I'd like to sort of recommend to us is that we recognize how precious family is, and that on a communal level, life cycles are the things that pull us together. I'll share in, uh, um, uh, an anecdote, the time that I at least feel that it's very true, because it tries my patience and makes me cry. I'm glad it's there and wish it were over. Mm-hmm. At the end of a bar bat mitzvah in our shul, we actually have a rule that the parents or a parent and somebody else, sometimes grandparents, two people speak And it's supposed to be for a total of three minutes. You are all laughing because that never, ever happens. They never stop on time. You Okay. So let me just say, you are the coolest person I've ever met. And, uh, yeah. Um, But when they speak, and it's not every time, when they remember to say, this is my blessing to you. Not every parent remembers that's what it's for. Sometimes they talk, I'm proud of this, and you did that, and that's great, but not what the moment's for. When they say, I bless you, sometimes they put their talus that they're wearing over their child, and they just, I don't know what they do. It's not for me to know. Um, those are the moments where I know that's, that's my blessing, because I'm under the talus with the person. Or, that's my friend who had a miracle child that they weren't sure they were going to be able to have. Or, that's my friend who adopted this baby. Or that's my baby who, you know, who I'm burying. Or all of that is so incredible because the lines between us begin to dissolve. And it's hard for that to be. But I think that's a Jewish best practice to stop seeing myself as ending where my body ends and my family where blood ends and my community where the walls end. So ultimately what I wish for us is that we have a lot of moments in our lives that breach those boundaries and that make it hard for us to breathe because it's really worth it to be together for those incredibly powerful moments.